Well, there you have another episode of Straight Out of Combat Radio, audio medicine by Green Zone Hero. He is a CEO of a worldwide security agency called Rat Pat. His name is J.R. McIntyre. He comes from Camp Hard Knocks. I just got to tell you, you're going to enjoy this episode. Stay tuned for one heck of a story. And thank you for listening to another episode of Straight Out of Combat Radio. Your steely-eyed killer shadow in the night. You were born to fight. You gotta light them up. My name is John Krotek, and I want to welcome you to Straight Out of Combat Radio, audio medicine by Green Zone Hero. We're here to honor the wisdom of America's most valuable asset for combat veterans. We're authentic, we're empowering, we're American. Save us all before they burn it down. Out of Combat Radio is Army veteran J.R. McIntyre. He's a decorated combat veteran. He's also the CEO at Rat Pack Worldwide Security and a consultant for people that are looking for those kinds of things. Before we listen to J.R.'s story, I want to tell you a little bit about him. He's a very humble guy. We just had a little bit of talking before we got on here live, and, and I can tell already this is a rock-solid individual. He cares and is very concerned about the folks that didn't make it back home from the Middle East. He's a man that comes from California, and we're going to hear about the way he was he was he grew up and and how he got to the army and and all about Rat Pack. But let me tell you, when he was in the army, he served in the first ID, the first infantry division in Germany, from 02 to 05. His first deployment, combat deployment, one of three, was in 2004 through 2005 on Operation Iraqi Freedom where he went to Tikrit, Iraq. There he served in the Army's 1st Cavalry Division. He actually was there after that, too. Second deployment was the Mosul, Iraq, 2006 to 2008 for 15 months. And he also served in the 1st Armored Division from 2009-2011, which was his third deployment to Mosul, Iraq. He did a lot of things over there. He directly planned and managed scheduling, logistics, and coordination of all training, including the use of all training sites and facilities. Prepared the battlefield for operational picture plans, orders, and fragmentary orders. Those of you who know that, Fragos. And assisted with all training operations. He oversaw all joint operations, center operations, and established and maintained the Army Battle Command System, where he served as the primary trainer for all tactical employment of the teams, assisted the commander with fire support planning and planning and coordinated and integrated all fire support assets to support the company's scheme of maneuvers, including mortars, artillery, fixed and rotary, rotary wing fires, and non-lethal fires. You know, needless to say, you just read that and you can tell that JR is one busy guy no matter where he goes. He was awarded a Bronze Star. They don't hand those out, ladies and gentlemen, for those of you who are listening. Bronze Stars are awarded to individuals that go above and beyond the call of duty. And when you get one in combat, it means something. I know JR doesn't like to talk about it very much because some of his buddies that didn't come home, but but I'm proud of him and I know his country is proud of him. And I want him to know that that's something that he needs to be proud of. Not only is he an Army veteran and combat, decorated combat veteran, he also holds a Bachelor of Science in Sports Medicine and an Associate's Degree in Sports Medicine. And he graduated from the EBV Yukon School of Business in 2019, just last year. He serves as the president of Student Veterans of America at Kaiser University in Tampa. 
He does a lot of things. I'm telling you, I'm getting winded just talking about Jr. He also was a veteran treatment court mentor in Tampa, Florida, helping out his brothers and sisters. I guess I'll tell you, I'm humbled and honored. Oh, and Jr. was recommended to me through Colonel Russell Barnes, who we all know, Air Force. I think he's from Brooklyn. He's an Air Force aviator. And he said, you got to talk to J.R. McIntyre. He's the real deal. And I know he is. So I'm humbled and honored to have J.R. here today on Straight Out of Combat Radio. Hey, J.R., what's up? How you doing? Thank you. Um, I'm so honored just to be on this platform right here because at the end of the day, it's a story that everybody has to tell. But telling it on this platform that honors the veterans, um, I'm just humbled today. Thank you. Well, you're welcome, man. And I and I want to get back to you on that. I, th- I want to thank you. We want to thank you. All the listeners want to thank you for telling your story and coming back to be able to do that. You know, thank God you're here, man. Because right. with guys like you telling the story, we're never going to forget. Let's shift gears, though. Tell us about the McIntyre household, where you're from, what you did growing up, who your mentors were, and how you even made it to the Army, man. I grew up in Long Beach, California, but before that, um, we stayed in Los Angeles off 101st Street in Avalon, a pretty dangerous neighborhood with the gangs and stuff. If you know the dynamics of California, you know it's very gang infiltrated. Um, I saw a lot growing up as a little boy. My mother was on drugs. Mm. She eventually died when I was eight years old of AIDS. I'm not ashamed to say that. When I was in school, they used to try to come consult me. And I told people my mother died of AIDS. One of the ladies was like, do you have it? And I'm like, how naive, but I was a little boy, but just seeing so much stuff before the age of like eight and nine years old, I saw my first death at like seven years old. I saw people shooting up crack cocaine. My sister was sold to a drug house. She's on drugs right now. But at the end of the day, it made me who I am because I had a strong, strong father, strong black father that he put that uh, in me like Jr. Like he was hard on me. I thought my dad hated me, but I see why he did that to me now because 2020, the, the world is just like he explained it. And, you know, it's, it's sad that I had to go through that. But I'm not making that a pity party. It made me who I am. I told myself I never wanted to to go back to them roots. But before I went into the army, I was. You know, I was a, a little, uh, a young boy. I love sports. Um, my dad was a preacher. I used to follow him around. Um, he used to go preach on the streets, talk really highly um, to, to people, try to get them to come to Christianity. And he still is a preacher. My dad's a bishop right now. That's my mentor. That's my best friend. But the heroes I saw growing up in my neighborhood were, were, the, were the gangbangers. You know, the, they were the ones that used to save the neighborhood. It wasn't like it is now, like people killing each other. It was They were saving it. They were they was out there talking, trying to bring people to, to together with for the neighborhood for a different cause. Yeah, you see a color, but it was for a different cause. Well, thanks for sharing that. You know, that's that's tough. And, you know, you and me were smoking and joking before we got on here. And, you know, I grew up on the West Coast of Florida, not like L.A., didn't see any of that stuff, but we still had lots of stuff going on, but nothing like that, man. That, that, like I said, God bless your dad, man, because it, it, it's, you need to have a mentor like that to get you through. JR, was there anybody in your family that was, was in the military? And sorry about your mom, too, man. I'm sorry. I really am. That my mother's a different situation. We'll talk on that soon. But both my grandfathers did a, a year or two, one was in the Navy. Um, my step grandfather was in the Navy for uh, 20 years, but my uh, my mom's dad was in the um, Navy for three. And um, 
I did not know that until I got older and I was in the military. They told I never seen them in uniform. They were way older than me. So to tell that story to me now, my dad told me like, hey, you know, your grandfather was in the Navy and, you know, this grandfather. Was, and, I, and I did not know that. But my dad was trying to push me into the Navy when I as soon as I graduated out of high school and I rebelled. I didn't go into the Army until I was 19, 20 years old. Tell us about that, man. Um, growing up, um, I thought I was going to be a football star. I played football for Long Beach Jordan and Long Beach Poly. And, um, you know, I thought I was going to continue my, my journey into college, got caught up in the hype and the neighborhood activities and got sent away for about 30 days. Yeah. When I got out of jail, my dad gave me an ultimatum. He said, you're not going to make a bad name for me. I put all my sweat, hard, earned tears into you. Either you go into the military or, you know, you go somewhere else. And um, two weeks later, after I saw two, uh, 9-11, six months later, I was in county jail. Two weeks later after that, I was in the Army, sworn in, leaving to go into Fort Sale, Oklahoma to become a foreign observer. <laughs> Good for that, man. So let me ask you this. So when you got out of that bus, man, when you rolled into Fort Sill, and again, thank you. Know, we'll talk a little bit about your family, but what was it like when you first got off the bus? What were you thinking, man? Wow. You know, like, that was in 2002, the, the, the cattle truck, you know, like screaming and yelling, going into the Welcome Center. Um, it's a bunch of uh, people there. Barracks are full. We're waiting for our time to come. The second day, they put us in formation. I didn't know what that was. People getting screamed and yelled at. And then we went to get our haircuts, get our shots, get everything situated and start escorting us to the drill pad. The drill pad was somewhere else on Fort Sill. I don't remember. And they put us in another cattle truck. And that was a wake up call because I had some of the meanest drill sergeants, about 12 of them. And they all they all singled in on me. I don't know why everybody got off the bus. I got off the bus like second to the last and they was on me hard and I didn't understand. And I had a hard time in basic training. I fought. I rebelled. I disagreed with a lot of stuff, but it made me who I am now. I challenged them. But I had a drill sergeant that his name was Drill Sergeant Climbs. He pulled me to the side. He said, "Youngster, if you don't get it, you're going to be back out there where you came from. And I, I would want you to get it, but it's going to be hard. Do you want it? And every day he was hard on me. And I got through it and I made it through. And here I am now. That's an awesome story, man. You know, I know why they're on you because you are you're you look like uh, Mr. Atlas. You know, <laughs> people can't see you. This is audio, but. And they're probably thinking, okay, this is a tough guy. We're going to take care of him. But, you know, they, they really were looking out for you. And we know that. Can you think of, JR, can you think of one instance in, in basic training that just you went, holy cow, I finally get it. This is for real. And this is what I want. Can you think of one thing, one instance, man, where it just hit you? The ruck march. I think the final ruck march, we, we walked all night. Um, I think it was about uh, about seven clicks. We walked all night, and uh, we were we was alone. And I was walking, and I was scared, and I was like, "God, is is this what you want from me?" And um, you know, right then and there, it clicked that okay, I'm gonna be a soldier, but what's next? Because I I didn't know that as soon as I graduated from basic training with the AIT, I was gonna be shipped off to Germany and then go straight to Iraq uh, a, a year later. I did not know that. I was in Iraq a year later after I got in the Army. So your MOS, you were Ford Observer for artillery? Yeah, 13 Fox with the Colt platoon. Um, very smart guys, um, controlling air assets, land assets, mortars, 155 rounds, um, A-10s, um, um, everything you can imagine. 
And um, it was fun, but it was hard to learn that MOS because you had to be intelligent and understand what you were doing because the wrong collateral damage estimation or target administration, you could possibly land yourself in jail or kill your troops, you know? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's complex, like you just said, all those different platforms. And just yeah. one mistake, man, could be a freaking disaster. So you make it through the tough AIT. Was right. that at Fort Sill, too? That was in Fort Sill. And then you immediately go overseas to first first uh, infantry division. Yes, in Germany. Big big red one, man. I mean that that's like uh, that's high speed, brother. Yeah, definitely. It, it is high speed because it's a small world. Because the first the commander that was I was assigned to, he is my mentor today, and I didn't know that was my commander because I remember my combat commander. I didn't remember the garrison one before he switched out. And uh, it's a small world. His name is Jerry. So, you know, Jerry Galloway, and he was my first commander in the Army of our, over our battalion in Big Red One, one seven Field Artillery. So you guys are basically in Germany. You guys are, it's all training missions. You're just getting ready to go down downwind? No, um, actually, I get to Germany, and uh, my, whole, um, my whole unit was going to Kosovo, and, um, and they've been there for about three months. So two weeks I was there, trained up, and they sent us to Kosovo, Bonstead. I guess it was, um, you know, uh, around that time, I guess it was uh, missions in Kosovo and Bosnia and all that good stuff. So the Army had uh, troops over there. When we got there, all we did was, um, you know, make sure it was the the FOB was secured and they played basketball all day. Well, somebody's got to do it. But, you know, good to have you guys over there. Um, So tell us about the first deployment then. Well, that that first deployment um, is is was the time clicker for me. I saw so much. We drove from Kuwait to Iraq, but when we got to Kuwait, it was so hot, sandstorms. It was like something out of a movie. We did not want to be there. We had to train reflective fire, shoot house drills, glass house drills, understanding. But what's crazy is um, they equipped us to drive from Kuwait to Iraq, and it was different talks that were leaving. And they put sandbags at the bottom of our Humvee because they said it would stop IEDs. And along the routes, we would see uh, remnants, vehicles overturned, the old Iraqi army uh, tanks flipped over, Humvees, dead bodies, stuff like that. And it opened my eyes because we had no doors. We was riding like we was an A-team driving. Um, we drove about 22 hours to towards Baghdad. And I was our last stop was towards Tikrit in Fab Summerall. Yeah, Bob Summerall. So you're basically on high alert the whole time, and you're seeing stuff that you've never seen before. Yeah, it was crazy. It was crazy for a kid to see that and really be there and see people in uniform um, subjected to this you know, type of stuff. And it made me grow up fast. It made me grow up really fast. When you, you know, did, did you guys understand why you were there and what the mission was? Um, at, I was a kid, so we did not. We knew that we got a mission to go to Iraq, and we knew it was a war going on, and we knew our AO but the mission really nobody really understood the mission of, uh, out of all our our tours. We understood what we had to do and when we got there to that AO. But the mission, like no, you know, the threat we knew the threat, but the mission, no. Can you give us an instance or two, you know, of um, because you did a lot of stuff, man. Your stuff was not this wasn't Mickey Mouse. This was like uh, very complex, you know, battlefield operations, logistics, and, and planning and. You know, t- tell us a little bit about that and, and, and how you took that. When it started to happen, what exactly were you doing? As a private, in my first deployment, we were just doing um, recon missions, um, going down Route Irish, Route Tampa, 
um, going in the village, the populace, doing leader engagements, um, really understanding, you know, this, this is um, the first time that U.S. troops was in this sector right here. So we was making our presence known. And um, the unit before us, I think it was Fort Carson, they really got beat up pretty bad. So when we stepped in, these guys were, you could see in their eyes, they was exhausted. They were tired. They were ready to do, um, I think it was called uh, left seat, right seat. And we switched out. So for that week or two of left seat, right seat, they was like, I was a gunner. So the guys were telling me, hey, you got to do this. You got to do that. The TTPs were different. As soon as they left, the TTPs changed. They, the, the Iraqis knew that we were a new unit. They knew by our patches. They knew what to test. And if you looked like you was not ready, they was going to test you, you know. Yeah, I mean, and that and that that's still going on. I mean, I don't think it's as heavy as it was when you were there, but there's still American soldiers on the ground in, in some of those places. So it's just you know it's got to be chaotic to say the least. Yeah, it is. It, it was. It was very eye opening as a kid. I was still a kid, but I, I had to grow up fast. It made me put on my big boy pants and say, "Okay, Jared, what is this?" and we was going on missions every day. It was not like our uh, mission once a week. No, every day we had a mission. Different platoons were rotating out. No days off. Showers with water bottles. We had to burn our own feces. That's the time I was in. And I was a private, so I never forget how that smelled when I burnt that, when I burnt the feces with the JP8 and had to turn it for about 45 minutes. And that was, you know, when we was off a mission, the privates got sent to do this, you know, dig the holes for the piss bottles and burn the feces. And we were sleeping in a hangar, a bombed hangar. And, um, you know, we don't know what we was exposed to, but we was out there. We put the little deet on our uniforms for the mosquitoes and the malaria and all that. We was taking malaria pills. Half of us was sick. Half of us can hold down no food for the first month. It was very crazy. I lost a lot of weight when I got there the first couple of months. I was scared. Um, I'm not afraid to say that. But at the end of the day, I did my job and I learned so fast after that deployment. That was 13, 12, 13 months. And I grew up. I did not come back the same JR I left. Uh, I came. Did you uh, did you have much contact with your family back in the States or was that how'd that go? Uh, back then it was hard. So we had to wait and uh, to go talk to them on a phone tent using um, AT&T minutes. And the lines were always packed. So you had to pick and choose. Would you go before chow or after chow or before mission or after mission? So I told myself I came up with a battle rhythm. I would call my my father every Thursday and I called him. Um, when I got there, I didn't call nobody for the first couple of months. So people were scared. Um, thought something had happened. Yeah. Yeah, they, they thought something happened. But I just didn't feel like standing in the phone tents. But we had to build our phone tents. You know, we had to build all that up. So. When I contacted my dad, he just broke down in tears and, you know, told me he was there for me. And, you know, being a dad, he wanted to be there physically, but he was there mentally. And I cried to him and told him I'd never seen no stuff like this. And what do I do? And, you know, I'm a very believer in God. So I thought I was doing the wrong thing by um, hurting the next man. But he's like, God has his warriors too, JR. So you have to be able to do your job. God knows your heart, you know. So well, There you go, man. Another time that you're glad your dad is there for you. Right. What were the Iraqi? What did you see from the Iraqi people? What was going on with those folks? Um, they rebelled. They did not want us there. Um, but it like they had a right to, you know, you know, sometimes we come in with our you know, blazing with our big guns and stuff like that. And maybe they didn't have nothing to do with what Saddam Hussein was, was talking about, because then we were actually, you know, looking for him. They found Saddam Hussein about 
four or five, four months after I got there in a the hole and we pulled out our cordon on security for that. They pulled them out the hole. So that period of time was different because it was they was in uh, tyranny, tyranny and, and he was a tyrant and they were tired of it. But some people were with it. They agreed with him. But when they took him away, Iraq got worse. It got worse. I could tell you that the time frame I was there from the beginning to when I left um, in two, my last deployment in 2011, it got worse. You know, they, So you were there during the surge too then? Yes, I was there during that. Uh-huh. I had on the, the desert camels and, you know, we was there and, um, you know, learning our learning our job. And um, we, we, we wasn't I was a forward observer and I'm with the I'm with the infantry or the scouts, but we was kicking indoors. Like we was every day looking for uh, the deck of cards, uh, looking for the missions, the bolos, whatever they put out, whatever the battalion put out. We were looking for them. Every every platoon had an AO and we covered our AO. You know, you know, Jr. looking back on it now. And I know that's I know it's tough to talk about, but it's good to talk about it, too. Let me ask you this, man. You know. If you had to do it all over again, would you do it? Yes. And that's and that's that's a crazy thing, because people ask me all the time, like I'm, I'm that veteran that. I know what I signed up for, and I know that God made me to be a protector. That's why I do executive protection right now. But back then, I didn't know my purpose. But now I know my purpose. And if it was to happen all over again, I think I would take that route. But I think that I would do it differently because I lost so many good friends over there. And um, one of them was my best friend, Curtis Wooden. And, um, you know, it you know, that, that right there, like I lost so many, but when I lost him two weeks before we left to come back home, yeah. it just, you know, it, it, it really struck me in a different way, you know? Yeah. You know, if you can, if you, if you want to, can, could you share, I know we, I talked about this and you told me this, can you share uh, how you, about the bronze star? Could you share that? Yeah, I got my um, bronze star in my, I think in my second or third deployment. And um, we had troops in contact and, we did our job, um, lays targets, um, laid down, um, suppressing fire. That day we lost uh, a good amount of dudes, and I pulled a lot of my guys out of combat and out of out of dangerous areas. Um, we got hit really hard, but we fought back hard. I think it was like 36 hours, and um, just put our best foot forward on that. And that mission, uh, I don't think. Um, I was aware that they was going to give me that award because that award usually goes to the people that pass away or higher ranking. I wasn't higher ranking at that time. You know, I think I was an E5 or an E6 and um, it was very political, but I got it when I got back from um, Iraq in formation. So. Well, congratulations on that. And again, sorry for your friend that you lost and for all the buddies that you lost. You know, it means a lot. Uh, people. Um, People need to hear that. They need to realize that um, some people don't come home. And it, like your dad said, it's the warriors like you that have a mission that you're called out to do. And, and if you don't come back, then you can't tell those that know nothing, that don't know anything about it. You know, exactly. so uh, you didn't hesitate saying you would do it o- again. And so you, you had three deployments. You're decorated when you get back home. Uh, your dad's your mentor. And, you know, could you tell us a little bit about your transition, what that was like for you? Yeah, I'm medically uh, retired. I'm not ashamed to say that. Um, I, I developed a, a bad case of TBI and PTSD, and I tried to fight it. You know, coming from where we come from as warriors, or being little boys when you fall down, you don't you don't cry when you get hurt. You know, so us 
being tough was us ignoring that we were hurt. And a lot of us were in pain because we did it multiple times. You know, um, we both we, we got a, lost a lot of guys over there, uh, hurt a lot of people, um, did our job, basically. And we were ignoring being hurt while chasing the rank. You know, a lot of us made E7 in seven years. Uh, one of my buddies made Sergeant Major in 13 years. And, you know, it's just we did a lot of awesome jobs, but we were taken mentally. Um, we would we would get we were, we were hurting mentally. So before I got out, Sergeant Major pulled me to the side and said, hey, he, he was one of my first sergeants in my first um, tour. And he said, you know, um, I know what you've been going through and I think you need to, you know, gracefully bow out. And I, I told him I was scared and, you know, we talked about it and um, I told him what was going on. He said, I can recognize in your, in your work what's going on and I just want to tell you I'm here for you and this is a protocol you should follow. So, um, you know, they hospitalized me a couple of times and, you know, I, I got to learn um, what I was facing and I didn't like it because I didn't understand what PTSD was. And I, I, I didn't understand the term, but I understand all the darkness and the ability to keep going back. Why did I want to keep going back? Because I had a vendetta of the 2003 and four tour all the guys that I lost the 2006 and 2008 tour, 15 months, all the guys were lost. So I was like, okay, you know, eye for an eye, two for a two. We're going to keep going back. We're going to do our job, you know? And around my second, third deployment, like I was, we was, we was zoned in. We were really like zoned in. There was no emotions at all. It was really black, really dark. We would do our job and we would make sure we get our, 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 our boys home. But at the end of the day, we wasn't afraid to make them decisions, you know? Yeah, you know, and it's good that you had an NCO like that that was able to look at you as an individual, care enough about you and be able to to see those things in you. But, you know, it, there there's an unspoken, you know, esprit de corps, an unspoken camaraderie in the military. And um, that speaks uh, speaks a lot about his him as an NCO. But so did you did you get back? Did you go straight to California when you got out? Or, I know you're in the Tampa Bay area. Is that right? Yeah, I'm in Tampa. No, I never went to California. I retired in, in Texas. I owned a house in Texas. And I just decided um, after a year after I, I got out, I'm coming to Florida. So I just up and moved, me and my dog. We lived in a hotel for about four weeks. And then we got a house in Tampa. What's your dog's name? Mega. <laughs> Good name, man. Yeah, so, uh, <laughs> well, let's talk about Rat Pack. And I got some questions to still ask you, but let's talk about Rat Pack, what it is you do. How you even got into that? Well, I know how you got into it because you're an Army guy, but, you know, tell us about Rat Pack. Well, um, Rat Pack is um, a better-owned uh, security company, and um, I was doing, I w I've been doing um, bodyguard and EP since 2009 when I was in the military. I did that because my second tour, the whole 15 months, I was um, PSD for my colonel and my sergeant major. So I was like a guardian angel. I was their bodyguard. I followed them everywhere into leader engagements, different fobs, flew with them everywhere, even with the general, even with General Tweedy. Um, uh, um, that's one of my mentors, too. So I learned that. And then when I got back that deployment after 15 months, they start throwing a bunch of like, you know, parties and stuff like that. So they asked me, they was like, hey, you want to do some um, bodyguarding for uh, a few individuals? I was like, sure. And my first client was Vita Guerrero in 2009. Um, I didn't know what I was getting into, but I made sure I did what I had to do. I worked alongside with a couple of LAPD um, um, police department guys, and I did my job, and they liked the way I did it. And from then on, I just said, okay, 
I want to do stuff like this. So I was doing individual work for celebrities, not bouncing, not by, not in the clubs. I was with um, artists or celebrities going places, doing things with them, just blending in the crowd. And then um, I came to Florida and Hurricane Maria hit 2017. All right. I had just graduated from my first bodyguard school. So they called me. They was like, hey, you want to take this mission? I was like, yeah, You're like get, get some of your best guys. A lot of my best guys are Rangers, special operation guys, collected them all up. Six of us went to uh, Puerto Rico and um, at Acebo, and we um, was there for 45 days. The company that hired us was um, a- another subcontractor of the sub, and they left us there with no resources, no food, no water, no fuel. Um, we slept on the floor. I got the pictures um, in the hotel. Um, slept I, The first couple of days, I was an advanced guy. I slept in the vehicle for two days. Um, had to find our own food. Um, Puerto Rico was ravishing each other. They were stealing each other's fuel. The Walmarts, the Sam Clubs, was they was robbing each other. It was crazy. So we had to go in and, and steal that. And we, we got put on an um, electrical plant that was at a Cebo, and we pulled security. And by day, we would walk the neighborhoods with our own money and give water, food, resources, because Remy's, Remy's from Puerto Rico. And some of, some of his family members was from, from there. So we just all got together and said, okay, while we're here doing this job, we also do humanitarian stuff too. And then might as well, if they're doing this like this and they're you know, they leaving us here, when we get back, let's start our own security company. And that's what we did. That's an awesome story, man. I'm, again, you're always, you're always in the right place at the right time with the right people. And, right. and, and it shows, and you, know, you can have success in a, in a life like that. So you're right up the road in Tampa. Let me ask you, you know, what would you what would you like the civilian world to know? Because, you know, some people freak out, man. You know, the combat veterans especially, they think that y'all are tweaked. That, right. oh, my gosh, you don't want to get in the way of a combat veteran because they're just going to go off. Right. What, do you, what do you want the civilian people to know about combat veterans? That we, we're, we're real people. And a lot of us. We had to. I wrote this poem about being a superhero when I was hospitalized, and if you notice, uh, uh, all of our. Do you have it? You got the poem with you? I have to look it up. Um, yeah, I can find it real quick for you, but I can recite it. Uh, what I what I wanted to state to the doctors that didn't know us and everybody else that thought that combat veterans are crazy is that if you look at all our our childhood superheroes, Batman, Spider Man, um, uh, Superman. Uh, Iron Man, they all had something tragic happen in a PTSD event that made them become who they were and what they wanted to fight for. Batman fell down the tunnel with all the bats. He almost drowned. Then he saw his calling. Superman, Spider-Man got bit by the spider. That was very tragic for him. Iron Man, you know, he he got taken to to the desert and and they put a hole in his chest and he said, okay, I'm going to combat this and I'm going to become the better person. So I told, told myself that at the end of the day, I was a superhero and all superheroes have to go through something to make them become who they are. And that's why I put that energy back into the world. And that's what I want the world to see that, yeah, I'm a combat veteran. Yeah, I've been through all these issues, but I'm not going to use that. I'm going to use that for my positive, to put my positive energy back into to the, to the, to the universe because there are kids are always watching my kids, other kids, people, and they want to hear the story. And yes, I've been through it. And yes, I think I'm the better person to be in a situation of, of, of situational awareness. When I'm out, I am high alert because I'm watching out for the predators, not because I'm just going to go run up in the building or, or and start shooting. No, I'm looking for the bad guys 
And if there are no bad guys, it's a good day. But if there are, there's a bad day for them because I'm always ready, you know? Well, that's definitely super, that's superhuman power right there. Superpowers, man. You know, thanks for sharing that. If there's a brother or sister out there that's, you know, a veteran, combat veteran, and they're struggling, like they're in that dark place that you know all about. Right. You know, what would JR, what would you tell them, man? I mean, I wouldn't tell them anything. I, 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 I would show them like, so from 2016 to now, I didn't let 12 homeless veterans stay in my house, wherever I was at. These guys that I served with that was battling PTSD in a dark spots, TBI, uh, didn't want to come out. was antisocial. And some of these good guys that I, I went to war with and I, I brought them in, I put them in school. I told them about the GI Bill, helped them get their first house with their VA loan, helped them get their disability, all that. So I would tell them that dark days is not going to last forever, forever, brother and sister. This is what we can do. Let's get back to finding your passion. The only reason why I push Rat Pack because it has a purpose behind it and a passion because I'm doing it for the guys that are not here. Every story I'm telling is for them because they wanted to live it now. And since they're not here no more, I'm going to push this envelope forever. And that's why I wear my bracelet all the time. That's why I always activate it in the community of veterans because that's what my purpose is. That's why I understand. And I wish them guys were here right now and it would be easier. But at the end of the day, they're not. So I'm going to live. I'm going to make sure that I live for them. You absolutely are, man. I mean, you just slipped a word in there that I think is important purpose. And, uh, you know, as an Army guy, Army veteran, that, you know, you find that purpose that can get you back in the game. Might take a while, but at least you'll have something to shoot for. Right. You, you know, JR, what is, and I know you got one, man. What is like your personal mantra? Do you have like a quote of JR quote, or do you have one? Something that you live by every day. That's a couple of them, but one of my favorite ones is from Bane. You know the um, Batman series. Um, you think darkness is your ally. You know uh, I was I was merely born in the darkness, and and that's how I feel when I came from California. Like I seen darkness. So what you tried to do to send me or put me in situations in Iraq and Afghanistan because I was in Afghanistan as a contractor. That those are dark days. Those are not like I was born in that. So I can see through that. So let me help you. Let me be your light to help you get through that. And that's how I feel. I like that, man. I like that. I'm giving me some ideas here, man. If your mom was alive today, mm. what would you want to tell her? What would you want her to know? I didn't cry for my mom when uh, she passed away when I was eight years old. Like I said, it was we was frowned upon to show emotion um, growing up where I came from. So I hid that a lot. My first tears dropped from my mother when I, when I saw my first... Um, I took my first life in, in combat, you know, and um, when I came back to my my um, hangar and, you know, it was split up with the curtains and stuff like that, I cried because I, I, I need her. I'm like, Mom, where were you to show me how to, to love? I, I don't know how to have emotion or affection or love. Where are you? And I, and I cried out for her. And um, if she was here today, I would want her to be here with me, living with me and seeing this journey. My mother had a problem with... Um, drug addiction and I know if she was still alive she'd probably be still doing that but I would keep her here just to show her that there's more than life to just doing that you know I don't know what she experienced growing up but she was trying to hide something and I, I didn't want to be the one to 
even the medications that the VA hospital give us. I didn't want to be the ones to abuse that. I want to be always to tell this story. Yes, I need it, but too much of something is always bad. And a lot of people don't understand that. And as she was here today, I was just looking in her eyes and saying, Mom, and I, I love you. I got you. Like, let's do this. Let's figure this thing out. You know, I, I, I didn't know your mom and, and uh, my heart goes out to you, you know, and thank you for sharing that story. But I, I do know human nature and I know that your mom would be damn proud of you, man. I'm telling you. So thanks for sharing that. JR, let me ask you this. What does freedom mean to you, man? It's, it's a mental, it's a um, mind, body and soul thing, you know, and, you know, for us to, to go over there to fight for our freedom, you know, you have to understand what you're really fighting for. And freedom to me means coming from where I come from in California, Long Beach, Compton, LA, like we didn't experience nothing like this. And yeah, I went through a lot of hard times in the military, but this world is more freer because of what we was able to do. Because if we were allowed to let them guys come over here, then I would, we wouldn't be having this podcast right now, you know? No, absolutely, man. You know, and that's kind of funny, the Compton area, because, you know, everybody's seen, well, not everybody, but if you see the movie Straight Outta Compton, you kind of get a little bit of a view. But I I got the kind of the, you know, we're straight out of combat, man. This is because it is combat and and life can be combat. I had a buddy tell me life is whoever suffers the best and it's, it's all about dealing with it. So what do people need to do to get in touch with Rat Pack Worldwide Security? How do, what do they need to do? They can um, contact us on, um, you know, they can Google us. We have a website, www.ratpackworldwidesecurity.com. Find me on LinkedIn. Um, we have an Instagram, Rat Pack Worldwide Security. We have a uh, Facebook, Rat Pack Worldwide Security. And we have a Google page, ratpackworldwidesecurity.com. And they can get in contact with us. Um, we do church security. We do school security. We do active shooter training, psychological training. We do a lot of EP, electric protection, um, a lot of venue, uh, WWF, WWE, boxing, MMA security. And we're focusing on government and federal contracts right now, along with our universities, because we want to be able to teach the millennials when they get out the military that you have something to fall back on. You have a brotherhood. This is a brotherhood and a sisterhood. A lot of companies that's going to hire you, just going to use you for who you are. And you almost used up, so they're going to get what they get, 17 years, and then put you aside again. You come here, you have family, you have camaraderie. We want to show you a life cycle. We want to teach you. We want to grow with you. We want to know your families. I'm like that sergeant major that dipped down and talked to the privates and, and make sure that they're okay. That's the kind of guy I am. Absolutely. And it, and it, it shows through your story. It shows in you know your character. You have, you're an outstanding person. And I just got to say that... Uh, Sharing your story with us today is so, you know, gives hope to those out there that may be in a place without hope. And especially in light of all this, all the things that are going on in America today. You know, Jr. if you were the president, man, tell me three things you would do right now. Oh, wow. I, I, would, I would change the, you know, reform the, the, the law system, the police, you know, make sure that they know they ROEs. Like create an ROE. When we went to Iraq, we had ROEs. We had rules engagements. We understood um, what we had to do. And um, I think just create an ROE, you know, and then bridge a gap between what's going on and knowledge. Knowledge is information. Understanding is, is understanding the bigger part of what's going on. It's not a racism thing. It's it's, it's a humanity. Let's figure this thing out. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm on, a, I'm an African-American male. And, and, and yes, I've been victim of the police situation before. And, and I, I can share that. Like when I came back from Iraq, my, um, my first time, 
I was uh, driving in Compton, picking up my friend, and the police pulled me over, and they thought that I was in that neighborhood to pick up um, drugs, and I wasn't. They had me on the curb for about an hour, took my dog tags, told me I was in the military. But make a short story, a long story short, the captain came out. Um, he said, what unit was you in? I said, Big Red One. He, he happened to have guys that were there, too. So he told him to take the cuffs on me, and he said, hey, this is the wrong neighborhood you should be in, and you should get home, and I got home. So it's just understanding. So that was that was a case of somebody doing something wrong and then the right guy coming to fix it and, and giving me education saying, hey, at this time of night, you shouldn't be over here. So, you know, just fixing the situation. And, you know, it's hard to be the president. I can't give the president advice. I wouldn't even want to be the United States president because there's so much um, responsibility that comes with that. But I would just suggest just, you know, educate everybody. Not just one person educating the, the whole populace, understanding what we're going against. And it's a humanity thing, you know. Right. Definitely some good advice. I mean, I, I could see you as president, man. So <laughs> seriously, I mean, you could get definitely get stuff done. I, You know, we've been we've been having a great conversation with right. J.R. McIntyre, United States Army veteran, combat decorated soldier who is the CEO of the Rat Pack Worldwide Security Company. He's also an outstanding consultant. He comes from the camp of hard knocks out in Compton, LA area, some of our nation's toughest streets. He is a, a guy that you want in your foxhole and a guy that you want working for you. So, you know, if you have, you know, security needs out there, get with the Rat Pack group because these guys and ladies are, are there to serve your security needs and they're going to do it in, in, in high fashion. Is, is there anything that you want to say as we close out today on Straight Outta Combat? No, thank you. Like, I'm, I'm humbled just to even have this podcast with you. you. You're very well known and your platform is big. And hopefully I was able to touch at least one. My father told me when I was young, you know, you could be in a room full of people. But if you teach touch one, one is going to touch millions. So hopefully somebody got the message and understand what I was trying to say. And um, just understand that. The real warriors are still here. We're still protectors. We're out there. We want to make sure everybody is safe. At the end of the day, we want to make sure that our, our family, and this is legacy. So I want the soldiers or the military personnel that are getting out the military to understand that you have a home in Rat Pack Worldwide Security. And we want to make sure that we train you in the right way. And if you still believe in being a protector, you come work with us. Because a lot of us, that's that's who we are. We know that for a fact that at any, any given time, if somebody gets exposed, we're going to protect everybody around us. Thank you for that, JR. Thank you for your time today, man. And, and you know what? Your country is proud of you. Uh, the whole family of Strata Combat listeners is proud of you. And I, I can't, you're just up the street. So I know I'm going to meet you, man. And, and I'm, I look forward to that day and just God bless you. And thank you for your time. No, thank you. I appreciate it so much. And I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing the interview. Just going with you. And if you need me, I'm here. And like I said, when this stuff slows up, let's go have some coffee. Let's talk and see what else we can do. Looking forward to it. Thank, thanks a lot, JR. Thank you. I appreciate it. You gotta before they burn it down. Thank you for listening to another episode of Straight Outta Combat Radio, audio medicine from Green Zone Hero. If you liked what you heard, then tell others about us. Like us and download us. And please remember, freedom is not free, and combat veterans are vital assets. They're not broken.